You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we have a leader in the industry, a heavy hitter in the architecture and property development space these days is David Hillam. David is the principal of Hillam Architects and co-owner of Edge Visionary Living. Dave, thanks for coming in, mate. Thanks, Trent. Great to be here. David, we have so much to talk about today because you cover so much ground in the industry. Many people for a long time would recognize your name for the work you've done in the architecture space, and I look forward to hearing from you as to some of those buildings that we probably recognize and may or may not know it was your team behind it, but also in the more contemporary time frame, your involvement as a property developer in your own right with Gavin Hawkins at Edge Visionary Living. You're building some pretty exciting stuff these days, Dave. Yeah, we're really excited. I guess the positioning of the Edge business is very much in the premium and the apartments that we've recently delivered, I think, are a testament to that. And we're getting great feedback from the owners that are living in the buildings. Look, it's a very challenging time, isn't it, when it comes to property development, delivering these apartments is something that, to be frank, most people have put on ice for quite a while. So the fact that you guys are actually kicking on with a a few of your projects speaks volumes to the strength of it and the strength of the backing of the business as well. But I'm sure we'll get to the broader market and, and how things are going. Firstly, as I like to do with some of the leaders in our industry, I want to talk about you. Let's talk about young David. Where'd you start in the industry? Did you know from a young age you wanted to be in a creative design space? Did you want to be an architect? Do you even know that was a job until you got one? Where did it all start? That's a great question. I think I first realised I wanted to do architecture when my mum took me and my siblings out of school for a year. We travelled around uh, Europe in a camper van for 10 months. Quite unusual to be um, taken out of school between year 11 and year 12. But for me, it was really formative, an amazing experience, but also where I think I got that sort of appreciation for architecture and the, uh, the idea of studying architecture started there. Well, that's where we probably find the most beautiful buildings in the world, right? And Absolutely. It, it, I mean, and, and the contemporary buildings, you know, Pompidou Centre and places like that also, I found uh, really fascinating. How did it affect your studies? I just took the year off and sort of resumed in year 12 at the beginning of the year. And I guess it was at the end of that year that I made the call to study architecture. I studied at Curtin, went straight through five years, and that was a great course. My friends who have gone through it, what I understand of the, the course is that it's probably got the highest attrition rate. Not many people get through second and third year. It's a lot of work and it's a long degree. When you, Most people will be surprised to know it's a five-year degree. Yeah, it's five years. I think we lost maybe half the cohort in the first year. So usually, at least when I was there, a fair bit went out in the first year. But after that, there was a core group that went through. Is there someone tapping you on the shoulder looking at your work from early days? Yeah, well, I think that's this is the next uh, really formative part of my career is that when I was at university in my last year, A Japanese architect came to the university and asked if anybody would like to come and work for him. I thought, that's amazing. I'll put my hand up. Six months after I graduated, I went to Japan for 18 months. That was just an amazing experience. I guess my love of uh, contemporary architecture developed during that time. And I think an appreciation of space and uh, there's a sort of combination of 
you know, highly futuristic uh, design in Japan at that time, but also the really beautiful work of architects like uh, Tato Ando, for example. Is this Kondo Architects you're talking about? It is, yes. Worked at Kondo Architects uh, for 18 months. You know, Mr. Kondo, he was always really happy to sort of contribute to my education. And, you know, I was helping him with some projects that he was working on in Queensland. So that was also really interesting uh, for me from a development perspective. Now, when I look at your resume in terms of the work you've done over time, there's a name that pops out here, which I expect is next on the list, and that's Michael Petroni. Why is it that I keep hearing his name from people in the industry as if he's he sounds like he's the godfather or the sponsor of so many impactful architects in Perth these days. I think Michael gave me an insight into uh, what attention to detail looks like. I wasn't with him for that long, but it certainly was a great experience to see the way that uh, he work and worked and the way that he thinks about his projects. But an amazing experience at spending that sort of rel- relatively short amount of time with him. And after that, I went to Melbourne for a year with my wife and she was studying in Melbourne and uh, then came back and worked for a larger firm. Starting your own business is something that is not for everyone. I think the world nearly tells you it's not worth it a lot of the time before you do it. It's a big jump. Most of us are risk averse when it comes to the downside risk. I even had a friend today ask me, Trent, what would your advice be? My wife is thinking about quitting a job, but just can't make the jump to starting our own business in, in their own personal space. But obviously it's something that you did relatively young and have never really looked back on. It's been 27 years now. Yes. I worked for three years for Hobbs Winning Australia, which was an old established firm. And it was, in fact, whilst I was with them that I did my first uh, development. It was a small duplex development just in Northbridge. It was on the back of that that the sort of work inquiry started to come in. My experience in working in a large firm was that I was working on a lot of projects that weren't getting built. For me, that was a, a frustration. Mm. And I think I felt that I'd rather go out and uh, you know design super small projects like toilet blocks and actually see them get built <laughs> than not see anything get built at all. That was the sort of feeling that I had at that time. When the inquiries started coming in, coming in I guess I initially uh, moonlighted for a while. But then I had sufficient funds because it was a duplex development. I'd made a bit of a profit and that gave me the opportunity to set up my practice. Have a crack. Yeah, that I had a bit of money behind me. But there's a lot of risk just in that first project because I didn't have a lot of capacity at that time to do that type of project and I had to take a fair bit of risk. Young architect, probably on the bones of his ass, right? Just just having a crack. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, uh, you know, when interest rates were really high. So it was a risky move at the time. Fortunately, it worked out for me and I went on and did another small duplex development also just in the Hyde Park area and that was I guess the start of I guess of doing my own design work but also doing development obviously a smaller scale. Do you have some streets that you can? Glendower Street which is just south side of uh, Hyde Park and Nebworth Avenue and those projects you know very tight blocks and I'd say that the experience that I had in Japan gave me an appreciation of how to use small pieces of land uh, in a different way. Can you shed some light on the planning space back then? Was it harder, easier? I don't think it was hard if you still wanted to just build a two-storey development, though most developments were battle axe if you're doing a duplex. And I guess these two projects in their time were fairly unique in that I divided the blocks down the centre. One lot was 10 metres wide and one was 12 metres wide. So five and six metre wide lots back then were, were, I think, rare. Well, very unique. And even to this day, you know, you would need an architectural design to make it work. It's not something that's stock standard off of a project builder website, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting natural light into the, the spaces, creating internal courtyards and so forth was critical to the quality of those designs. What you're expressing here is that from a young age, you were not only interested in 
creativity, the architectural work, but also, uh, I guess, the buzz that comes with developing property. Your property development experience didn't just start when you started Edge 10 years ago. No, not at all. I mean, between um, those smaller projects and starting Edge, I, was, I, I guess I, I continued that development journey and, and grew the scale of the projects that I was working on. Though, yeah, certainly both architecture and development was, was of interest, and I sort of went on and got my builder's ticket as well. And maybe uh, my time in Japan led to that sort of approach. The Japanese industry back then was vertically integrated in a significant way. And I guess I, I sort of looked at that and thought, well, why can't I also be doing that? Do you think there's a prerequisite to being a good architect in that you've also put yourself out there to experience the developer side and understand some of the more commercial aspects? I think one key criticism a lot of industry has for architects is they never seem to appreciate the commerciality of a development. Clearly, as a developer yourself from a young age, you would understand that. Absolutely. And and, and having also done building work as well, where I sort of was literally on the site putting the scaffold up and so forth. I think that gives you an appreciation to practicalities in construction and and where you focus your budget and where you get value. Hillam's gone from very humble starts, obviously, as I expect it would have been, just yourself, starting off as a kid in his 20s. How did it progress there? Do you have some key milestones you remember over the last few decades where you thought, well, that's where we really had some springboards there? I guess I went from moonlighting to going out as a sole practitioner and then getting your first couple of employees. That, uh, I guess, was just a progressive uh, process. And in some respects, we were designing projects even quite early in the practice. Uh, I I recall in 97 that we were designing nine-storey buildings in South Perth, and they were considered reasonably decent-sized buildings back then. So I think we allowed ourselves to be thrown in the deep end, and we we learnt quickly. The milestones relating to development probably came together when I started looking at syndicated property development. I say pride of a GFC because we went through that cycle, and we had done two or three projects before the GFC. They'd gone very well, and then we went through that really challenging cycle. So that was also a really good learning experience. And the way that we had to approach projects after that and, and try to get the first projects back off, off the ground following the GFC really led us to think about the different ways you can look at projects. So, for example, one of our clients, we recut one of the buildings that we did that was previously approved for 39 dwellings into, I think it was around about 80 dwellings in the same envelope. And that was a sort of mechanism that we had to go through to get that project off the ground. And um, our client joint ventured it actually with Paul Blackburn back in the day. That's a name that is synonymous with development alongside Edge these days. And it's, it's, I guess it's interesting how you're both growing in your own right and intertwining with each other to be developing the skyline of Perth these days in many ways. We, I think, designed probably six projects for Paul when his career was just taking off. And uh, we like to think that we made a contribution to him doing well. And yeah, that was also a great learning experience for us to see the way that he was thinking about his projects. For the lay listener who might not know a project name, are there any buildings specifically that if you retired today, you'd like to be able to answer the question of, well, what what developments were you a part of and what would be the top two or three that really stick out that you're proud of? The first larger project that we designed for Paul was the Aria Apartments in Swanbourne. I think that was the first project where there was a really significant amount of amenity uh, put into the project. So it became attractive to people that were downsizing who didn't necessarily want to com- compromise on lifestyle. And it really, I guess, was industry leading and, and, and an award-winning project. 
at the time uh, in the way that it delivered, I guess, the quality on the quality expectation of, of those residents and also went to the next level in terms of amenity. So, you know, that was, I think, Paul's thinking at the time and, and, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. But Ballsy, we, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, but we were really pleased that we could execute on that vision, I think, in a good way. And I think that building will definitely uh, last the test of time. So I guess it is sort of, I guess, a signature building that flagged a different sort of approach to apartment building. So, you know, prior to that, some of the buildings that we designed, the amenity was looked at as a, you know, a small gym that maybe had one or two pieces of equipment in, in it. Whereas uh, we really turned our mind to the way that people might have expected to live if they had the quarter acre block, what is it that they had in their backyard? Could they entertain, you know, 20 or 30 people? How would they do that in an apartment building? So I think that was a real turning point a point for apartments in Perth. And at the time, the market was really challenging. So you really had to do something special, I think, to attract the buyers. And that was a mechanism. And I guess we've built on, on that and, uh, you know, a recent project by Edge, which is Eden, out at Florida, also um, winning awards with the uh, UDIA and the uh, Property Council. I watched that go um, from ground up. Yeah, a... I mean, we've been we've we continue to get great feedback. I live in the building myself, and and we, I get great feedback from the other people living in the building. I think that um, it's a sort of a joy to see the community uh, developing as a really sort of positive space, and the way that the spaces that we've designed get actively used. Um, those buildings, I think, so far are two standouts, but we also have some amazing buildings that we think are on the um, horizon that will sort of also rival and, and surpass those. So I guess there's been a trend that each project has to evolve from the previous project to sort of stay ahead of the game, so to speak. Let's move across the edge for a second. Hmm. Have you known Gavin for a long time? Was it a coincidental meeting of the minds 10 or 11 years ago to get this going? How does it come together? Because it's quite unique where you've got how I would express him, the money man or the funds manager coming together with the creative side, the architect and thinking, well, let's do it together. You're always introduced to Gavin by a, a common mentor, Reg Gillard who I think chaired the Aspen Group when Gavin was there. But he also bought a house that we had designed and and had helped me syndicate some projects. And I think Gavin was an investor in one of those projects. And that would have been back in around about 2007. And that was, I guess, the first introduction, mainly as an investor. But we also helped Gavin out with his house in City Beach. Um, it had already been designed, but uh, we sort of came in and gave a bit of advice around that. So I guess that's when the uh, relationship first uh, developed. Gavin left uh, Aspen and we started talking about uh, putting Edge together. I had a few projects that uh, I'd already um, gone out and done the groundwork on and, and they were projects that we effectively became the first Edge projects. Well, which one was the first Edge project? We did a couple, couple of projects out in uh, Rivervale, the Collective, Ace Apartments. Well, I think we might have designed about five buildings out in that precinct because we were also still designing for Paul out there. We followed with another Edge project, Vantage, in that same sort of Springs um, precinct. So we were sort of heavily involved in what was available to develop in that um, space out there. So those were the first couple of Edge projects. And then we've moved on to sort of other, other areas. As an architect, you obviously got the concept, the strategy, and you're always on the ground looking at opportunities. But I guess one of the realities of property development is you need to be a master of the financial side. It's all well and good to be a good project manager, to have a strategy, to be able to have a good team of all of these consultants, whether you've got the skills or not. But if you can't master having the, the money behind you to get these projects up in the first place, 
you really just a fellow with a lot of ideas and some good consultants around you. I'm assuming that's where a lot of the strengths of Gavin comes in is looking from the outside, the proliferation of developments that Edge has got under its belt now is very impressive and, and I would suggest can only be realised by a serious financial backing to get some of these projects up at the same time. Most developers might be able to do one at a time. Gavin was very focused on finding our investors. The investment mix has changed over time and I think become more mature. Uh, but certainly uh, he, he brought his skill set to that side of the business and that's uh, no doubt underwritten the, the fairly uh, rapid growth in the business. Does the concept and the strategy drive the investment or does the investment drive looking for more projects? I think, as you said, we're, we're constantly canvassing sites and we do that for other developers as well. Edge um, would have a particular focus on the type of site that we're looking for, which is, as I said, uh, now probably very much in the premium space, riverfront, oceanfront, or, you know, some sort of compelling, desirable... A luxury um, touch. Yeah, absolutely. So we're constantly canvassing the sites, but also, as you say, an appreciation of the financial equation is sort of uh, front of mind as we look at the feasibility. So we'll look at the feasibility across any size project. The feasibility is, I guess, firstly, an architectural feasibility in terms of resolving how the site might be laid out, but the economic realities of that are critical to um, things stacking up. That's just the experience I've had because I have been involved in that financing side and I think that's um, why we also continue to attract other developers as architects because they, they understand that we we sort of get that feasibility part. As architects, perhaps we aren't paid well enough to try to understand that side of the equation, but if you actually just have it in your experience, that, that's that's really useful. Well, it's a competitive advantage as it becomes that. It sets yes. you apart. When I say the word art house, what does it mean to you? It's the uh, tallest building in uh, Joondalup, and uh, you can see it from a fair way away uh, as you drive up the freeway. And uh, yeah, that was really exciting. Um, and and the, the city of Joondalup was super supportive of uh, that project. I think that they're really looking for density in the city to activate the city. And I think that, you know, that really helps local businesses. It helps uh, create a vital environment. And it's absolutely the right move for a, a centre like Joondalup. And surprisingly, it was highly sought after, not necessarily by the demographic that we th first felt, which we thought perhaps students, healthcare workers, government workers were our demographic. Uh, what we found was it was still baby boomers and downsizers were a very significant part of the uh, demographic wanting to move into an apartment building and the advantage of what apartment living brings in terms of convenience. Do you ever see yourself pressing copy and paste on a development like that down the road? Is there capacity in Joondalup for another high-rise development? Oh, I would have thought so. I think the economic climate has to suit that. Uh, construction costs are um, extremely high at the moment. But it's surprising we could sell apartments in Joondalup, two-bedroom apartments for, say, you know, six to 700K, and there'd be three-bedroom houses only a kilometre or so away selling for, you know, maybe 400. So yeah. it shows that um, sometimes if you build the product, people will come. It's an easy segue here, and that's construction prices, which has been, I guess, a reality for builders, developers, financiers, and off-the-plan buyers. It's been a part of our lives, a factor of our lives that has affected us all negatively, to be frank, except for the tradesmen, over the last three years. One stat that I keep talking to is that no apartment developments have gotten off the ground in the last seven months. Yes. Do you see that getting any easier from your 
background at Edge, obviously you guys have got projects I'm sure you'd like to be pressing go on. What's the reality on the ground for one of Perth's biggest department developers? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we're, I think, uh, very fortunate in that we're positioned in that premium space. Simple rule of thumb is that if you're selling your apartments for less than twelve or $13,000 a square metre, your project's not going to stack up. And Which, um, is, which was a, nearly a laughable number three years ago. Correct. I was looking to FISO up apartments in Netherlands at eight, nine, ten thousand dollars against your one Mabels and Jollymont and these only three years ago and there's no way we could justify that at the time. Now look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Talked about Paul earlier. I mean he's selling apartments out at Karen up for fourteen up to you know, around fourteen thousand dollars a square metre, which as you say, three years ago I don't think anybody would have contemplated would have that that would be possible that yeah. would be possible. So if you can't sell at those sale rates, um, it's really hard to make them work. And I know that some people that I've spoken to, some of my peers in the architectural industry have sort of said 70% of the apartment projects they've designed are currently not feasible. And so how are your projects going? You obviously got them in the luxury space. You've got Lumiere, Riviera. These are obviously in places where people can pay the big dollars. And that's obviously a strategy of yours. What's been the reality for you guys to be able to get these up, make it work? when most others can't. It's eyes wide open here. The developers are aware of it, builders are aware of it, it's a tough gig, and buyers just want, in a lot of cases, their apartments. Firstly, Gav's put together a really talented team at Edge, and it's heavily weighted with guys that have a lot of construction experience. So they were in a great position to, I guess, go through almost line by line all of the, um, the pricing on our projects. We worked, I think, on Riviere, probably for, negotiated with Pact, who are the builders, for probably 10 months to get to the point where we we signed them up for the main construction uh, contract. And every month costs money. Absolutely. And uh, we were keen to get there sooner rather than later. But, uh, you know, both parties, I think, approached that in good faith. But, gee, it was challenging. The numbers that were coming in um, were sort of, I guess, for us at the time, a bit eye-watering. And oh, can, um, can I ask a really frank question here? Was there ever a point over the last couple of years where you thought, we're knackered here, there's no way this is getting up? I think you sort of think about that, but you also think about the imperative to go forward because of the investment that you've made in the project. Yeah, and, and the people who are pre-bought and are looking for an out. I mean, as property developers, we provide shelter. We provide a basic need. And as much as there is a driver in terms of business profit and all that, there's also, I'm sure you share this with me, uh, responsibilities to society to deliver on the things we promised we're going to do. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, our, our buyers were super excited, I think, to be um, moving into a building at you know, Riverfront in Apple Cross looking at the city. It was just how do we actually get the equation to work? We, as, as did pretty much every other developer in town last year, go back to their buyers and talk to them about the reality of the construction cost. The contracts have those provisions and I think we were facing at least or more than a 50% construction cost increase, which was unprecedented. The team at Edge, I think, did a brilliant job in conducting those conversations. And our buyers, I think, were really understanding because it wasn't a one-off. They could see it in the press. They also had the benefit, I think, in, in many cases, or at least in some cases, that they had been holding property that probably had appreciated reasonably well in the time since they signed the contract. So they were perhaps better equipped than, say, an entry-level buyer to find the extra funds. But, you know, we as a developer, I think, also came to the party because we were prepared to look at uh, slimmer profit margins to make the project go forward. Well, I think everyone wears it, right? And a lot of us 
it's less about the money and more about the satisfaction of achieving something together. Yes, right? As long absolutely. as we can move on to the next one. Yeah. The next one is obviously exciting for you guys. You've got a, a number of cool projects coming out, which we'll talk about in a second. But one question I want to ask you before I forget. The theme in Perth seems to be that apartments only works right now in the higher end. You look at the stuff you're doing, you look at the stuff Paul's doing, it's all in pretty well-off areas that a lot of people in Perth can't afford a house, let alone an apartment, let alone a drive-through and go to local IGA, right? Historically though, and uh, across the country, apartments was seen as investment stock. It will always have a space there, but also is seen as a, a compromise of living in many ways for people in the middle ground, for your Maylands, for your Borragoons, for your Mount Lawleys, these areas. Mm. Is there a time in the foreseeable future where it actually can work in those spaces and is the only way it does if we have a structural shift in pricing in, in these areas in the psyche of Western Australians to actually pay for this product in the middle ground? Well, I think the evidence on the East Coast suggests absolutely. I think it's, it is a bit of a mindset. There's no doubt that I guess the apartment product is, is moving into those spaces. I mean, we're doing a project for Tim Willing, Willing Property in Mount Lawley. And uh, that project, Field Street, yes, the yep. Field Street project. That project is is viable in the current climate. It's been built now. It was somewhat challenging, I think, to get to get that construction phase. But Tim's done a good job in working uh, with the builder to get it to that point. No doubt that prices have to adjust, and people are accepting of those adjustments. I think construction costs will come back to a certain extent, but probably worth noting that in Perth, construction costs were pretty much stagnant for 10 to 15 years. So they were always going to move and, and we might say there was an overcorrection due to external stimulus and factors to do with yeah. cost of supply materials and so forth. And that's got to settle down a little bit and there'll be a new normal basically going forward. I think that What's really positive now is that we can look at a project in the knowledge that we don't see construction costs going much higher and if anything, they should come back. So at least we know what the feasibility looks like. The real challenge in the last couple of years is that rapid rise in construction and what it did to the feasibility that you did you know, a year or so prior to that. I was recently in Brisbane for the first time. And one thing that really shocked me, opened my eyes, was the proliferation of apartment developments there. The height, the height in areas that I would consider would be the Netherlands, the Dalkeiths, the Applecross, the South Perths, the River Vales. And it wasn't just a couple of standout apartments. There were buildings everywhere that were 15 to 25 stories that looked really high spec, that were beautiful places. And my friend who was driving me through the suburb of New Farm, which he mm. said, mate, this is like the Netherlands Dalkeith. And he said, the only way I can afford to live here is because I live in an apartment. Now, a place like Brisbane always seems to have been a bit more of a progressive city than Perth. They like that. They seem to be more entrepreneurial. Perth seems to be, from a political standpoint, one that you couldn't have a scarier paradigm than height in the planning system in Western Australia. Height seems to be the biggest pushback on all amenity. Do things need to change in WA? Are things changing? I think the recent political decisions suggest that things need to change and that they are changing. It's interesting. I mean, Netherlands is a, is a classic example. Uh, we've d designed tall buildings in South Perth and Applecross, which I think there's a much bigger disparity in terms of scale than, than what's proposed in our projects in Netherlands. So the way it was put was that, the, you know, a six-storey project on the highway in Netherlands was, was contentious. And, I mean, that was transitioning to three storeys and then to two storeys. It was really the planning scheme that was actually imposed on the city, uh, at least um, in the area that we've are working in, I think was quite modest. And yet 
it's been construed as being a really significant imposition. This I is think the Gardens project you're talking about. Correct. You know, it was front page of a local newspaper almost on a weekly basis for a while. It would have been um, the devil for a while in the Netherlands, right? It was a little bit like that. And yeah. we had a couple of community sessions, um, and, and that's the way it felt, which is ironic because we've also done community consultation in South Perth, in Apple Cross, and uh, more recently in Cottesloe. And we've, we found a much more considered sort of response and it, I guess the sad thing is is that there is a really vocal group of people who do have fear and we just need the opportunity to explain that in fact the impact of what we're proposing isn't as significant as they think it is. I mean I use the um, ARIA project as an example. I know that we had a lot of opposition to that project at the time and that was City of Netherlands and the Mayor sort of late, late after we finished the project sort of said well gee it's not as bad as I thought it might have been. Now we usually get really good feedback even from the people that perhaps oppose our projects um, after they see them in the street and they realise that in fact they're not contributing to, to traffic jams and so forth. In fact it's probably the uh, the sprawl that we see in the city that's contributing uh, to traffic jams more than anything else. So it's that type of fear and I think just an education piece to make a difference. But The ironic thing is that half the, the local area will be putting their hands up, the other half will be buying an apartment off you. Absolutely. And that's, that's the thing. It's almost exclusively local buyers. And it's so their neighbours, it's the neighbours that are moving into these buildings and they're the ones that want to stay in their communities. And it was put to us in relation to Netherlands that perhaps um, our buyers should be buying out at City West, but you know they've been living in the Netherlands community, so I think they have every right to want to live in the same community that they've been in for perhaps the last 50 years, rather than being shipped off uh, next to the freeway. Not that that's a bad place for an apartment development. To say that you can't build apartment developments in certain sections of, let's say, the western suburbs, I don't think is realistic and or fair to the people that actually want that style of living. That, that's very true, and, and we could spend an hour talking about my gripes on uh, the local council there, but we won't get anywhere on that. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk yes. about the, we know the projects you're delivering. We, we see the advertising for it. We see the buildings going up in stark contrast to most developers who can't get moving at the moment. What does the future hold for Edge and Hillam? What are you guys planning right now? What can we expect to see in the next couple of years? I think that we've got a really exciting pipeline of projects. We have four projects that we expect to go to construction in the next year. We have the project in Fremantle in that sort of arts precinct next to the Fremantle Arts Centre where we have a series of five buildings which have a combination of social housing, low-cost housing, but also premium housing. So we're, I guess, developing a, pre a, a community there that uh, is diverse. That sort of progression of buildings that we're doing there, I think will be really interesting to see that roll out. We're looking at get, doing the first two buildings now, and the government is very keen to see that project fast-track so that we can help support community housing. The other projects that are in the pipeline in Mindari, Scarborough, are also um, really exciting to see them sort of coming to fruition. You're mentioning the coast. And yes. This is another point of contention in Western Australia, right? You look at the east coast, they use their coast, they mm. use their rivers, they have density along these places. You look at Western Australia, West Coast Highway is maxed out usually at two or, if you're lucky, three floors. Most of it's residential, obviously. Very hotly contended. You saw the yellow development was probably one of the crazed public comment uh, developments in a generation, and that was for four floors. You obviously pushed there a, a very strategic space in Mindari. You got, as you said, Scarborough. There's a whole bunch of coast in between there that could all benefit from density, um, people being able to enjoy at a lower price point those views and that lifestyle. Do you think in the next 5, 10, 20 years, 
things will change there? Or do we have to just get used to the fact that that is a very exclusive area for people who can pay multi-million dollars? There's a lot of opportunity uh, uh, south of Scarborough running down to City Beach. I know for a fact that we've looked at numerous projects in that precinct. North of Scarborough, uh, I guess running up to Mindari, absolutely there should be more density near the coast. And I think that the point you make around people being able to afford to live in great locations and enjoy the amenity of being by the beach and so forth, that is a real community benefit that I think shouldn't be lost um, in the way that people think about density because not only does it uh, vitalise those precincts in terms of having great cafes and places that can be supported by that density but it means that people can go and uh, walk along the beach and, and, and get access to that without having to jump into their cars so that walkability factor is There's really... a huge number of downsizes I mean, this whole city of Joondalup stretch you know your Sorrentos your mm. Lucas Marmions Malaloo, Kalaroo all these suburbs are suburbs that were first developed in the 70s that are full of people in their 60s now with nowhere to go Oh, absolutely. And and I guess the success of um, Art House is testament to that. That's what gives us um, confidence about doing projects in places like Mindari, because we know that those people are there. Just going back to your comment about the coast, of course, one of the other exciting projects is the OBH. We're hoping for an approval um, sometime in the next month or so on, on that one. Yeah, I think we're confident. We've done, you know, over two years, a lot of work. And, you know, the, the sort of comments about the SDAU process being a rubber stamp I can guarantee it's not a rubber stamp. The professionals in there have been super diligent in Please making sure. Please tell us about it. Uh, we've never actually interviewed anyone who's gone through the process yet. What's it like? We spoke about it last week with Ross Manette. We spoke about that now being extended into perpetuity as a pathway. Mm. What do you think? What's the first-hand experience? I think the principle of SDAU is critical. I think the government's mandate that time, you know, time frames are put on that process is important. The process we've gone through has taken longer than we expected, so the idea that it's a quick process, I guess, up until now, I don't think actually has applied in our case at least. Having said that, I think that the amount of care and consideration and diligence in the process is the community should be aware that the people uh, in those positions where they judge these buildings, they have great concern for the environment, the quality of the proposals that are being put through that pathway. Another interesting thing I just wanted to say about the OBH is that the publicity is around height and number of stories and it's so forth. You know, only 5% of that building is over, over height. So 5% by volume is actually a really small reach in terms of development. Often these things are sensationalised, I think, by the media, but also by people that prefer that nothing happen. Yeah, small action groups. And I find a lot of people, the same thing happens in the childcare space, for example, which is where I'm spending quite a bit of time. And a lot of people use the word amenity as the reason that there should be refusal. And I think they stand behind that, that veil of amenity when really what they're worried about is whether it will affect the value of their home. Yes. Because having an extra four metres or one metre or five metres of height in the example of apartments has absolutely no impact on someone's amenity because we don't look up that high. Often we don't even see it from a certain distance and it has nothing to do with your day-to-day. If there's proven that there's not an unacceptable level of overshadowing or overlooking, then what impact does it have on your life? The only impact that someone may perceive it to have 
is value to their home, which is not a proper planning consideration. And often the extra height is the benefit that comes from the extra height is there's more space at ground level being opened up. And so there's usually a trade-off and the people that sort of sit in judgment of these buildings are looking for that trade-off. So if you're looking at maybe in Applecross, I know that, for example, the extra height that we managed to get through was foreshadowed in the planning scheme. But the amount of community benefit that's going into that project, I think is, you know, it's, it's real benefit it's, and it's significant. And often uh, the trade-off is, as I said, more space at ground level, which has been the approach that we've uh, taken with the OBH is to open up more plaza space in sort of meaningful parts of, um, I guess, that site where the community can really benefit. I know you operate in the large format, high density space these days, but you're an architect. I'm sure you're across the changes that have been made in the medium density code as well in that R30 to R60 space. I'm sure you've got clients in that space. Do you have any perspectives on how this may impact the ability to provide supply? Is the market ready for it? And are are architects, developers, buyers, builders ready for this? And is it a good move forward? I think that it's absolutely a good move forward because it's it's, uh, really looking at the quality of the the houses or the um, units that have been built and that might be in a, let's call it a townhouse type configuration. The focus on natural light for living spaces, deep root zones for uh, planting and, and, and looking at tree canopy and so forth. Those are really super critical elements and I think we've all seen, I guess, that type of development done poorly. The lack of um, sort of landscape cover and so forth is uh, something that those codes look to address and I think that's a really good thing. I think there's there's still a few things that might need to be ironed out but certainly even, even in their current format, it's a huge improvement. It's asking people to develop at a high level of quality mm. and to a certain extent, that may mean that some areas get developed less quickly, but at least you know that, um, you know, that's a, let's call it a, an inner ring suburb. You know that the quality is going to be there because there's going to be demand for quality in the inner ring and some of the quality has been less than desirable. So I think what those codes aspire to is, is super important. The other thing that's really important is, is what's between that sort of townhouse level and I guess the larger projects that we've been working on most often. I mean, we're, we're working on some townhouse projects and, and, uh, I, and smaller apartment buildings. So I think there's going to be a, a really significant shift away from just the larger projects to sort of high street type projects, which you see in places like Melbourne and Brisbane, as you say. In Brisbane, it's a city that's not much different to Perth, but I think that we might have 15 to 20% of our residents living in apartments and Brisbane's got 30 to 40% of their residents living in apartments. And that's got a lot to do with uh, the underwriting of sprawl that we have in Perth. It's and, planning. And, and I think that people are now waking up to the fact it's not necessarily great to live so far away from urban environments. And I think younger people who are entry-level buyers, the Australian dream's a little bit different. Mm. It's more about the, the experience when you walk out the front door. Do you have to jump in your car or not? I think that uh, apartment living in Perth will continue to sort of progress and, and thrive. And, and you can look at Brisbane, I guess, as an example of where we might um, be heading. Well, uh, it is funny. You live in an apartment. I live personally in an apartment down the road as well in, in Northbridge near Hyde Park. And I speak all the time about the benefits of it and the conveniences of it too. But you're right. The sprawl is the issue for me. When a suburb like Baldivis proliferates or Yanchep or Alkamos, it doesn't just affect those areas. It affects everyone along the way on the freeway towards the city. And you can see just how hard it is, just how long it takes to get from 
your Coburn Central or your Sorrento these days because of all the guys who are already on the road 20 minutes before you to get into the city for work. That doesn't happen as much. If you look at a map, for example, of Brisbane, the city is so much larger in terms of population but so much smaller in terms of square meterage. Mm. And a big part of that is the fact that they have one city council since 1929 that has purposefully used the water. It doesn't have the political nature that a lot of these small councils do pushing against urban infill in their areas and is planned properly for density in areas that allows for walk score and amenity close to the river. We don't have that and I think a big reason for that is the, the fact we never amalgamated our local governments, the fact that there are still many local governments protecting their little patch with far more power than in any other way they would have had. Now we're in a position where we're playing catch up. And the stats will show we're way behind on our 2009 metrics of the urban infill we should have been providing since then. Yeah, and look, um, I think the government's doing a lot of work to change that trend. I think that now they need to turn their minds to to supporting uh, infrastructure that supports density. Metronet, obviously, um, great initiative, but the inner ring that I mentioned before, how are we supporting the inner ring with light rail and other transport options that give people certainty about how long it's going to take to get to work and so forth? I think that's really critical, is that, that next level of infrastructure and for it to be focused um, in and around where we want the density outcomes, which are good for the productivity of the whole community. Let's think Ascot, Maylands on the south side, uh, Riverton, Shelley, Rossmoyne. These are all areas that can all benefit with beautiful river views. They're in an inner ring. They're close to transport nodes. They're close to really good schools as well. These are areas that currently sit on R10, R20 blocks. If we rezoned those, the density there close enough to the city to enjoy all those benefits would be immensely reflective of the way that, for example, your Brisbane or your Sydney has progressed over the decades that we just haven't moved to. And I think that's where the opportunity is. As you said, it's in, it's right in that, that inner ring within 10 k's of the city where we're just not even thinking about it right now. Yeah, I think there have been attempts to do that well. The Springs yeah. uh, Rivervale is an example. I think uh, Como Apple Cross uh, was a scheme that the city of Melville adopted was uh, progressive, um, some would say ahead of before its time. Before their time, yeah. Before yep. their time. Uh, in fact, they've, they've sought Especially to sort of... In Como. Yeah, they've sought to ramp it back and there's been concerns about the scale of some of the buildings next to single residential. I understand that that transition is difficult, but I guess the benefit for those people that do have their single residential houses in those areas is that they're usually seeing some sort of value increase mm. as a result of the rezoning. So... If it can sort of work for all parties, I mean, that uh, there's always going to be people that don't want to move out of their single-storey st- house. But if they're within 500 metres of a train station, we've got to be seriously looking at those places and understanding the great benefits that the density brings in terms of getting cars off the road. If there was one thing the state government could do for you, like a genie in a bottle, to assist you to deliver what you do best, which is obviously providing fantastically designed apartments these days what would it be? One of the things that would help is that there'd be less support of sprawl, particularly if you look at the cost of that infrastructure per lot. I think it's actually quite significant. Mm. And, you know, all taxpayers are paying for that, uh, for the benefit, I guess, of the land developments. But To the opportunity cost of infill. Yeah. Having said that, I think the government, uh, in their more recent initiatives around supporting costs around services for apartments and so forth, that's a really positive move. So I think the government... Certainly understands it and they're looking to support 
all sectors because they understand the Aussie dream is sort of out there, mm. even though I would say that it's changed or is changing and needs to change. And I think the, the thing that government can do is get some really good quality public transport in and around the, the inner ring, as I said, but also those moves that the state is making in terms of looking at the approval process for projects and trying to cut back on red tape and uh, reduce timelines. All of that, I think, is really positive. So, you know, the, the current government gets it and doesn't necessarily pander to sort of local politics. No, they certainly don't. Uh, when it comes to that uh, $80 million you were talking about, that's been handed out recently, 40 mil to the city, 40 mil to the regions, $10,000 per dwelling. David, is that really making the difference to getting a project to stack up in the first place? $10,000 a dwelling? It all helps. I was in a meeting today and it was talked about, particularly with the construction cost increases, some projects are on the knife's edge when it comes to feasibility. So, you know, if that's enough to get those projects across the line, that's that's a great thing. I do think there's a bigger... There's so much more that can be done. Yeah, I think there's... That wouldn't cost them anything. Absolutely. I think that there's other opportunities and I think that there's people in UDIA, Property Council, that, that are thinking carefully about what can help support density. But the approval process is a huge part of it. Good quality public transport is a big part of it. Foreign buyers surcharge. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting one, actually. Um, what, in fact, was really interesting about this, because I've done road shows over in Asia, Sydney and Melbourne had been mar- marketing themselves effectively to places like Hong Kong, places in you know, China and Malaysia and so forth, really effectively for 20 years. And we hadn't had to market. We were busy anyway. And we didn't have the surcharge. So when the eastern states introduced their surcharge, that was a time where we could differentiate and perhaps catch up a little bit. So that was a real real pity to see that surcharge go on because that could have been our point of difference. It could have brought more focus uh, back to Perth and uh, more investment to Perth, which is critical because there's a rental shortage. We need some foreign investment in apartments and, and, and typically foreign investors tend to invest in product that's going to be rented as mm. opposed to lived in by themselves and uh, that would have been a great thing for Perth for us to maintain that competitive advantage or at least tip the scales a little bit more in our direction. The funny thing is I've done my numbers on this Dave looking at the FERB data over the last 10 years. We were selling about 1,500 to 2,000 properties to foreign investors back in 2014, 2015. Last year was about 170. Wow. And yeah. over the last five years uh, since this it was introduced, this surcharge, Ben White suggested we were going to make about $50 million from this surcharge. Hmm. In lost stamp duty alone, we've lost about $200 million. Yeah, we've seen the same trend. number of foreign buyers are almost non-existent in the apartments that we're designing. Really tough to get over and, and actually justify the expense of actually trying to promote your projects overseas. We did it for a few years. We gave up. It's expensive. How do you compete against the Gold Coast, Melbourne and Sydney when they've got the same surcharge? Exactly. You know, they're well known. Those guys have been marketing their cities uh, for, for a long time. And uh, as a state, we haven't necessarily promoted Perth. I mean, the fact that states like South Australia and Tasmania have gone past us with um, education shows just, I, you know, I can't believe it because we're on the same timeline that we haven't 
I think through successive governments, this is not a recent thing, successive governments could have done much, much more uh, in Rest terms of promoting. Lives, yeah, we've been busy, we've, we're happy, we're content. You know, that's not helping us now when we've got a housing shortage um, and a rental, you know, a 1% vacancy rate and rentals and so forth. So, yeah, I think it would be really helpful to re-incentivise foreign buyers to come back into our market to help fund the rental sort of product that I think is is sorely missing at the moment. I think for me, they are the Kickstarter to the new price point that the industry will require to get these projects off the ground, to give that confidence, 70% sold, and that last 30% come to the party locally. Hmm. That sort of thing, I think, is what we were seeing for years in the last boom. And we need the kindling for the fire to get moving again, because it is a culture shift we're going to have to see in WA when it comes to height and urban infill for us to be able to solve these problems of supply going into the future. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I think there's been some good moves. And the more recent announcements by the government this year, I think, shows that they know what's required to start moving the dial. And they understand the benefits of density and, and what that can do in terms of creating really vibrant communities. David Hillam, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been extremely enlightening. Uh, I look forward to having you on again, if we can, in the future to give us an update on how things are going at Hillerman Edge. Yeah, thanks, Trent. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!